soul. We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. We read on now in chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them, that would be the priests and elders and leaders, arose and led him, Jesus, to Pilate. That would be the Roman governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, that'd be Herod the Tetrarch, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time, of course, because it was the Jewish feast and all the men would be there. Verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, You've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast." And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I find no reason for the death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and the voice of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, that's Barabbas, but he delivered Jesus to their will. We'll stop there for tonight and focus on these events in the first, these first 25 verses. Now, it's interesting because, of course, Jesus is the center of the storm. And you have Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus and Pilate, Jesus and Herod the Tetrarch, Jesus and Pilate again, Jesus and Barabbas, and then Pilate, the religious leaders, Barabbas and Jesus, all in one cluster going different ways under different circumstances. It's all interwoven and connected. But we begin tonight with these religious leaders 
And again, we have to consider them because including the high priest, the high priesthood was established by the Lord himself around 1500 BC under the Mosaic law. Of course, the first high priest was Aaron, the brother of Moses, and then Eleazar, his son, and then Phineas, his grandson, and all the high priests came from that time on. And it's amazing to think that the high priesthood existed for 1,500 years. Just consider how old our nation is, and it'd be you know, more than five times that amount of time of, of our country existing as a country. And it's a long time. And the scribes, they had the job of, of translating the scriptures and preserving the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the word scribe actually means counter. So they'd count the, the Hebrew words to, for the accuracy when they copied the manuscripts and uh, the term scribe that's related to that. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, we know that there was actually a couple of high priests. They belonged to the order of the, Sad- the Sadducees who denied the fullness of the scriptures. It had become a political office, much like we see in other religious systems that can take place, uh, even in Christianity at times, in different denominations, the, the boss can be more of a political position than a, a religious one, and there's nothing new under the sun, we see that. Man, God calls us toward eternity, but man gravitates toward power in the temporal, and we understand that. So this group of people that rejected Jesus, the Sanhedrin Council of these 70 rulers, they're scribes, they're Pharisees, they're Sadducees, they're the high priest. They were entrusted with the scriptures. We know that. The Bible tells us that they were entrusted with the scriptures. Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures for in them you think they have life, but the scriptures are that which declare me to you. And then later on when he is resurrected in Luke 24, in speaking to the apostles, he opened their understanding to the law of the Old Testament, the prophets, and the Psalms, the poetic books. So after Jesus was resurrected, he showed the apostles, how he fulfilled all those things. And that's how this book will end for us in about a month or so. So these religious leaders were supposed to recognize the Messiah. Now, the Messiah clearly was going to be the king of the Jews. When Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, He says, it is as you say. These are the only red letters in this story tonight. It is as you say. And remember, before the council prior to this, in the previous chapter, when, remember last week, it was like, it is what it is. That was our application. But they said to Jesus, are, are you the son of God? And he, and he said, you rightly say that I am. So the king of the Jews is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And all those prophecies of the Old Testament from the, the law of the Old Testament, from the prophets and from the Psalms, were all apexing and pointing toward Jesus Christ. And in searching the scriptures, you would know that even Herod the Great, the grandfather of Herod the Tetrarch, who we have in the text tonight, when Jesus was born, it was that Herod, the grandfather of Herod the Tetrarch, who they had appointed power. They're Idumeans. They're from more the south of modern uh, Gaza, and they had been educated in Rome, and uh, they had political power, and they understood the Jewish people as well. Later on, Paul would address one of the Herod descendants, saying, you know the scriptures, and you know how it works. And so they had a, they were a Roman mindset, but they had a Jewish understanding, being Idumeans from that region. Herod the Great, when the wise men came to him and said, we've heard the king's been born, we've come to find the king, and Herod brought in the scribes, and what did they say? They, they searched the scriptures, and they said, it is said that he'll be born in Bethlehem. They were correct. So these same guys, the same group of people, two generations before, for Herod the Great, interpreted properly the scriptures 
where the Messiah, the King, would be born, and Jesus fulfilled that. And it's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. The interesting thing about being the King of the Jews, because in Revelation, Jesus comes second time as the King of Kings. But as the King of the Jews, he's coming as the promised one to the Jewish people that God set apart. Now, when God called Abraham 2,000 years before the time of Christ, he set him apart. And as all the nations went their way and all their pagan and false religious systems, he revealed himself to the nation of Israel, gave him his word through Abraham and through, you know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and then Israel, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons. The nations preserved in Egypt, and they come out. And when he brought them to Mount Sinai and made the Mosaic Covenant with them with Moses around 1500 B.C., he said, you are my people. You're my own special people. He said, you're my wife, and I'm married to you. He set this ethnic people group aside and said, we're in this together. And in spite of the nation's unfaithfulness to the Lord during that 1500-year period, there are various times of revival when the word of God was applied and, and listened to. But... 500 years into it, they had their king. They demanded a king. And, you know, kings are kings, right? And Samuel the prophet said, you don't want a king. Because I'll tell you what the king's going to do. He's going to take your finest young men, your finest young women, and he's going to take, he's going to tax you to death. He's going to take your children and tax you. And he's going to be like all the other kings around you. And you're meant to have the Lord rule over you. And they said, no, no, no. We want a king we can see. And Samuel warned them, and God said to Samuel, hey, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And my son Luke just mentioned this. So this week we were talking about uh, when Israel demanded a king. He goes, hey, you want taxes? You want that king? There's your king. He tells your kids what they can do, puts a draft in, and you pay all the money to the king. They asked for it. They got it. But the second king, of course, was David's. Uh, Saul being the first king, a bad king, his, David's father-in-law, David was a great king, and at the end of David's life, he said, I'm going to build God a temple. Like, God is awesome, and I want to build him a temple. I live in this incredible house. I want to build God an awesome house. And Nathan the prophet says, yeah, for sure, do what's all in your heart. And then Nathan goes home, and the Lord's like, why are you telling that? You're my prophet. You, tell, you, know, you, you spoke prematurely. Just because it sounds like a good idea doesn't mean that's the case. He, he can't build the temple for me. He's a man of war. He's a man of blood. And he cannot build the temple for me. But tell him, I'm going to build him a house. See, that's how grace works. See, human religion is like, I'm going to build a temple for God. I'm going to do this for God. And God, grace, God's grace says, you know, Nathan, go back and tell him, I'm going to do something for him. And in that promise that God made to David through Nathan the prophet, he said, I'm going to give you a son. And from your descendants, a son's going to come who will be the greatest of all kings. He'll have an everlasting kingdom of which there is no end. And that king is this king right here. That's this king. It took a thousand years for that prophecy to come to pass. When Jesus said to Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, if you've known this day, your day, it, that day, that's the king. That's the king's triumphant entry on the, on the foal of a donkey, that king. This is the king of the Jews. When he comes again as the conquering king, the king of kings and lord of lords, it's on the white horse in Revelation 19. On the cross, it's going to say king of the Jews. The religious leader said, say he said he was the king of the Jews. No, he's on the cross as the king of the Jews by God's decree in three languages. King of the Jews. Like when you go to Kaiser and there's three languages when you're checking in. Same thing. King of the Jews. Three languages. So everybody knows that we're talking about the same thing when they look at this 
perfect man who never sinned, who is the son of man, the king of the Jews, and the king of kings, and the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on the Passover feast, replaces the Passover, already did that night, who submits perfectly to the Father's will. When they look on that cross and they see king of the Jews, it will never be forgotten who he is and the purpose of his first coming and fulfilling all those prophecies. And that's what you have here. In this entire text, Jesus just says, Pilate, the Roman governor representing human power, says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. And as we saw last week, he is who he is. Jesus is that king. All those prophecies moving through the the law, through the historical books, through the prophets, through the Psalms, just moving, moving the poetic books right there to this moment. This is an incredible moment when Jesus Christ says to Pilate, it is as you say. This is that amazing 24 hours by which every event on this planet still revolves around and is held accountable to. There's not one soul on this planet tonight whose life does not revolve around these events on this 24-hour period when God himself, deity on earth, the Son of God, says, it is as you say. Now, we know from John's gospel, Pilate said, so uh, about your kingdom, Jesus said, if my kingdom of this world, we would take it by force. And Pilate, of course, was really intimidated by Jesus. And Pilate's wife said, I had a bad dream about this man. Do nothing with him. We get that from the other gospel accounts. But it is, it is as you say. And these religious leaders entrusted with the scriptures, entrusted with the promises, knowing the miracles, rejecting the signs, rejecting the the word of God. They rejected the testimony of Moses. They rejected all of it. To get to this point, so much unbelief, so much pride, so much darkness to get to this point. Let me draw your attention to the words associated with these people rejecting Jesus Christ who are the ones who are entrusted by God to identify Jesus Christ to the nation, their king. They arose, in verse 1, they arose to murder. They arose not to serve, not to praise. They arose to murder. Verse 2, they began to accuse. And these accusations, of course, are false. They began to accuse. Verse 5, it says that they were more fierce. They got more fierce in their accusations against Jesus. Verse 10, when the chief priests were there with Herod the Tetrarch, they vehemently accused Jesus. In verse 14, Pilate said, you brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. One of the false accusations against Jesus. Jesus himself said this very day, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't mislead the people. He is the way for all humanity of all nations. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, Jesus said, and he's about to be lifted up. Then in verse 18 concerning Jesus, they say, away with this man. They cried out for a murderer instead. Verse 21, they shout out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Just think how demented you have to be, what lines you have to cross, that in your, your, your professionally religious, you are a professional religious person, you are highly educated in your seminary and in your stuff. You can't be on the council having not been educated in the best education possible. These are educated people 
in their society. And they're out of their minds. And their unbelief has imploded upon them like a black star, like a black hole. It implodes on itself gravitationally. And they're imploding in their unbelief to the point where their king who is being given to them for their sins, they are saying, crucify, crucify. Think of the violence of that statement. It'd be one thing if you're at a high school football game and people are talking trash and suddenly people are throwing punches because it's a rivalry game like we used to see at our football games in the old Avocado League in North County. Seems there's always fights. But it was fights and it was just young men being stupid. This kind of violence is so malicious, so hostile, the line you have to cross where you're so out of your mind, even in your professionalism, that you're so filled with hatred and anger and malice and hostility toward God, and you're so filled with wrath toward everything that is true and lovely and pure and holy and wonderful that your false religion has been exposed and you are so consumed with your hostility against God in his holiness and his goodness that you are screaming for his crucifixion, and crucifixion, the brutality of it, is beyond measure. When you study crucifixion, you understand the Romans, it was a great form of terror that they imposed on people. When they conquered people, to suppress people and subjugate people, you just, you just, took those people, you stripped them down naked and you hammered them to a cross and you let them hang out there and die while people walked by and looked at them. The atrocity of it is almost, in our generation, we can't even wrap our minds around it. Now, if we were in the previous generation, the World War II generation, we could imagine these atrocities because of what went on in World War II. But it's hard for us in our generation, post-World War II, even the Korean-Vietnam generations, it's harder for us to... uh, Grasp this. Even though ISIS did things like this to believers in Syria and Iraq and Kurdistan and those places, it's still hard for us to grasp this. But it, the brutality. So these are professional people filled with hostility and wrath against God saying, crucify, crucify. But, you know, we do see the hostility to Jesus Christ in our society. And we see uh, intolerance toward the message of the gospel. And we see violence against people who represent all that's the gospel, the person of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. And we do see that the injustices come against those people more often than not in the so-called intellectual circles. So to some degree, we can picture it. But it's one thing to beat people up because of different political views on a, modern, on a college campus in America. It's quite another to demand for someone to be stripped down and beaten and executed in your group of people. You've crossed the line, and these people crossed the line. It's a line that none of us in this room ever want to cross. We don't want to cross that line. We're, we just, at any time, with any humanity, it's hard enough being a man of war and war, and God draws a distinction between death and war and death and peacetime. He did so with uh, Joab, in uh, David's general, in Samuel. But we would never want to cross this line. And if you study people who cross this line, they never come back and they're never quite the same. Praise the Lord, we live in a time of peace by and large, like the time of Solomon. We just don't know. But there's a line you cross. And I've talked to people who have been in major combat and they, and they talk about, they don't, they don't want to talk about it. And these people, these are religious leaders and they did this to Jesus. It's not just a wholesale failure of their position that God gave them It's a wholesale failure of their humanity. 
It's a crime against humanity. Because even Pilate says he's innocent. So it's not just, it's, it's a crime against humanity and it's a crime against our king. It's, it's, for me, it's just so hard to comprehend, but actually, it's not. So they were insistent. They said, crucify, crucify. In verse 23, they're insistent, demanding. Now, we know from the other gospels that a riot was about to begin. They were losing control. You, you begin to lose control. And we can picture different scenes. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, the original old footage that you see of that in Russia when the communists came to power. Or maybe like, uh, I don't know, the various coups that happened in South Vietnam when the war was going on. Or when Ceausescu was removed in Romania. or You know, there's images we have that when people are a mob, like uh, when everything began with the, this, the Arab Spring and, you know, just how it gets going. And once it gets going, it's hard to stop it. And Pilate, even with all his Roman authority, he was afraid. And, you know, you don't want to report to your superiors that you lost control of, a, of the, the stewardship that you had being in charge. He's a very powerful person and charge of an important area where they had a lot of insurrection. And so Pilate was in a tough place. It's hard not to feel some empathy for Pilate. But as they were insistent in verse 23, we understand it was on the verge of being a riot and losing control. And they would have been prepared for that because all the men, Jewish men, come to Jerusalem for the feast, one of the three feasts, Passover being the big one, if you will. And they would always be ready for it. And even so, and then finally we read in verse, it says in verse 23, they prevailed. In verse 25, Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. But remember, that's an interesting phrase, Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. But what did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane a couple of weeks ago? Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father, and we know that. In 1 Peter, it says this concerning uh, suffering wrongdoing. And Jesus suffered great wrongdoing here. And we suffer wrongdoing sometimes. But especially with personal attacks. And maybe you've, I mean, it's really about Jesus, but still I would say maybe you've endured personal attacks at work, family, friends, relatives, attacks that weren't true. Maybe as I was reading these things I did that you thought of things that people have done to you. And there certainly would be application for that if you've ever just in the human experience, experience that, let alone for faith in Jesus or for righteousness' sake, as it says in the Sermon on the Mount. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter, many years later, said this about when you suffer for doing good, like Jesus here. And who is he who will harm you if you become a follower of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and you do not be afraid of their threats, nor their trouble, or nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, that those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Whatever we might have suffered at any given time of injustices, and I know some of your stories in this room, you have suffered injustices by evil people against you with lies and malice and falsehood. The beautiful thing about Jesus in this story is he, he hasn't, he's only done good. He's above reproach. 
Now, sometimes we suffer because we've been foolish, and David, we can relate to David, because David always said, oh, man, I was stupid, and then this happened, and, but it's still unfair, and maybe that's a classification we can come under. But I just think the attack, any personal attack that you or I could ever go through, it's good to measure it by these verses, because this is unbelievable. And this is what believers do go through in other parts of the world on a consistent basis in a large portion of the planet for their faith in Jesus Christ, where it's not even personal that someone doesn't like you because they work with you. It's because you are ambassador of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus, we're told in Isaiah 53, like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter and opened not his mouth which is the second point I want to bring up here tonight. The innocence of Jesus. I've already touched on it, but I'll touch on it again briefly. Verse 4, Pilate, representing common law and practice, the courts. He said, plain and simply, the moment they brought these false accusations, he's a politician, he's a Roman, he, he, he can read people, and he just goes, I find no fault in this man. Jesus was above reproach. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brandt. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Brand. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.